And we almost didn't go because so many people had said, no, you can't do it with little kids. Welcome to the Family Travel Podcast by A Big Peachy Adventure, where we help families plan their adventures, whether it's for a week, indefinite, or anywhere in between. No matter what your budget, we bring you hints and tips from the experts, inspirational stories of families who are living their dreams, as well as must highlights from places that we and our guests visit. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Family Travel Podcast by A Big Peachy Adventure. You're joined today by your hosts, Michael and Natalie, and um, we are speaking to you from Karumba at the very top of um, Queensland, up near the top, as we make our way across to Darwin. I'm looking out the window at um, another lovely travelling family who we bumped into along the way, the Tag Tribe. We're stoked that we have met another travelling family who are making some of the same stops as us and our kids are having an absolute ball. If you're on Facebook, check out the Tag Tribe. They've got some beautiful photos and um, they're sharing a, a little bit of the journey that we've, we've had together. So we've crossed the Savannah Way, well, at least the section from Cairns to Normanton before heading north uh, to our current location here in Karumba. We had the privilege of interviewing Aaron and Jack, who you can also find as Chaos in a Tin Can on Facebook, before we did this journey. These guys have both got backgrounds as paramedics and have crossed the Udnadatta Track, the Tanami Desert, and also the Gibb River Road. Uh, we got a lot out of this episode in terms of uh, some specifics for preparation, adjusting our expectations, but more importantly, what to think about when you hear others' advice based on their experiences. This episode would help anyone prepping for remote travel, uh, but the principles could apply to anyone who's preparing for travel as a whole. Uh, this episode of the Family Travel Podcast is proudly brought to you by TrailerMate, uh, who set the standard for caravan and trailer jacks. Their TrailerMate hydraulic caravan and trailer jack is the one that converts into a jack when you need it. You simply swap the wheel out for a solid base plate. Um, their product is so popular, they kept on getting feedback that people's trailer mate kept on getting stolen, uh, or people would come out to their caravan to find out that theirs had been swapped out for an older one. Uh, so they've now introduced their brand new product, the TrailerMate Anti-Theft Lock, uh, so now you can keep it under lock and key. It's pretty similar to one of those lockable hitch pins for your tow bar. It's as simple as removing your existing wheel clamp handle, uh, inserting the locking pin, and then clipping the lock on the end of the locking pin. Uh, there'll be links to this in the show notes, and you can see pictures on our Facebook page. So without further ado, here is our interview with Aaron and Jack on preparing for remote travel as a family. Welcome to the Family Travel Podcast. Thank you. <laughs> it's great to have you on, guys. Uh, so for anyone who wondered about that uh, awkward pause there, we'd already been chatting for about 10 minutes. But uh, <laughs> um, So Aaron and Jack, uh, just to start off with, um, so our listeners can put it in the context, can you tell us a little bit about your background and how long you've been going for? Yeah, um, we both, uh, I was a paramedic, Jack still a paramedic. We left... Um, on a six-month journey, thirteen months ago, kind of on a whim, we we I was medically terminated from New South Wales ambulance, and Jack was on maternity leave, and we thought at that point in time we had discussed doing some travel 
and uh, we thought that we should set a date and leave. So we gave ourselves 10 weeks to buy a van, buy a car and organise a house to leave for a six-month trip. After about two weeks, we decided that we didn't want to come home, so we put the house in the market and it was subsequently sold. Uh, so that's kind of where we're at. Yeah, we've done shift work with the kids for, uh, I don't know, in, like in between having all the kids, we, I went back to work and we virtually didn't see each other when we were both working shift work. And it was just not the life we wanted to keep living. So I would walk in the door for a day and we'd have a tired day together and then Jack would walk in, we'd have a day together. So it was just that sort of, and obviously my medical termination played into this a lot as well. So, yeah, we bought the van and off we went. We had no idea what we are doing. We still consider ourselves as having no idea what we're doing. We weren't even sure how many families were doing it. We, we'd heard of um, Beck and Justin and Tripp in a van, but we'd never really had any idea of who was doing it and how, how it would happen or, or anything like that. So, yeah, we just bit the bullet and, and sold up and, well, we bought and left. I honestly believe that this time with the kids has been extremely beneficial for them and for us because I, I didn't see the kids. I miss when Jack, you know, so we've missed so many so many things and events and things just because of our work. Like we don't, we work Christmas Day, we work New Year's Eve, we work birthdays, we work school carnivals, we work, you know, all of those big things. We work dancing and so this is a big thing and I think when we, Nettie, who's our four-year-old, was scared to go to preschool like he was he was really scared and now he's the most effervescent little man you've ever seen he's talked to anybody and so yeah like their confidence and their ability and and their gross motor skills are, are amazing and even Heidi like our nine-year-old she would never have like played with a boy yeah if, you know like it doesn't matter if they're exactly the same age and like the same thing she wouldn't go and yeah I think that know. escape from peer pressure is an enormous thing for her like she's been she's a, she's sort of blossomed as well coming out from under the idea of, of, of what her friends think is the right thing to do and her about to think for herself and yeah yeah it's good as our, our seven-year-old girl's been the same gone from having a two yeah. little besties who she would not be without to and not talking to anyone, <laughs> anyone else, to having to find other friends. So it's been really good to see. I've got two questions. Uh, first of all, you mentioned kids and that you're on maternity leave. Um, who is in your family? We have Heidi, who is nine, Ned, who's four, going on 15, <laughs> uh, Angus, who's three, and Caden, who's almost two. Wonderful. And um, then my next question is about your setup. What are you travelling in? Yep, so our tug, we have a, 200, a 2011 200 series cruiser called Linda, and she's amazing. We love her. Um, she's pretty well been faultless this entire trip. We've done about 55, 56,000 Ks, I think, and um, gone across some of the world's, I'm sorry, Australia's craziest roads. Um, and we, our home, our tin can is a 25-foot litre gold. With an Explorer pack, pack which yeah. makes it a little bit more... Heavy duty for dirt And because you guys initially set off, you know, with 10 weeks notice and a six-month plan, was that what you set off with originally or did you change along your travels? No, but this is what we bought for the six-month trip. Yeah. Um, we're having the four kids. We're sort of, I don't know, want to say limited in our choices, but really it certainly naive. narrowed things down a little bit as far as what cars we could use and like we were really naive about how we thought that we could do the whole of Australia in six months. We honestly thought that we could go around, see everyone to see and come back and she's sweet, settle back into our lives and it'll be fine. 
before we left. And then, and so we had some things were requirements before we left, which was four bunks. We didn't want to be making like the um, a table into a bed at all when Caden got got a bit bigger. And we definitely wanted a separate toilet and ensuite. One of our requirements for the van was we said to the salesperson, we wanted to do the Gib River Road. We wanted to be durable enough to do the Gib River Road. I, I had no idea what it was. I didn't know where the road was or what it was, but I knew people went there. <laughs> I knew it was tough. And I wanted to, to be able to do that road. And it was the only road I could possibly think of that, that I could say to them, that's what I wanted to do. And so that's sort of where it was around. And, and you know, the van's been amazing. It's really, it, it really has been an amazing van. It's, so it, we, were, we struggled yeah. with that criteria. We, we just, we didn't necessarily need the four bunks, but we wanted, we didn't want to have to be making our table into a bed so we would have nowhere to sit if it was raining or And time was ticking down. Like We'd given ourselves 10 weeks to leave. So we needed something that could be built in that time. Um, and everyone said, yeah, we can build that for you, no problems, but it'll take, you know, X amount of months. So. And cost like $100,000, which we didn't have. So when we went to the show in Sydney and Lita said, well, we have one of these and we can do it for you. We're like, lovely. Um, that's awesome. Let's how much and let's sign on the dotted line. I think now that that honestly believe that this the family market is becoming huge in caravans. And I think that most brands are now catering for bigger families. It seems to me that there's a lot of big families traveling and there is a the, the market is definitely catering more and more for a bigger family. Oh yeah, all the companies said they'd make one yeah. for us. With the four bunks, no problem. Talking about the van and how you needed to be configured to do the Gib River Road, which I'll be honest, I didn't know what that was until we started travelling on. <laughs> um, <laughs> tell, us, tell us about your recent adventure and, uh, you know, where you went and how long you've been on the dirt road for. So Udnadatta, Tanami, and then the Gib, I don't know, it's about three, just 3,000 k's or just under three, two and a half thousand k's of, of pretty at times ugly dirt road um so Udadada was a lot of people um were telling us Udadada is basically just a highway and it's a pretty easy road to do and that's when we decided that people have different ideas of what highways are than what we than our perception of what highways are yeah it's a good road I, I enjoyed Udadada Jack was happy when we found something was interesting along the way and then we went across the Tanami Tanami was was good fun it, we had outlaid uh two or three days so it'll end up taking a six we had some uh, an ugly experience on tanami with some wild dogs at our third night on the road and ended up spending a couple of nights at wolf creek and met some amazing people and off the tanami and onto the onto the gib the gib was really good and so what was the uh, experience with the dogs we were at a free camp called Sturt Creek, which is about... This is uh, probably not PG rated. Yeah. Just, just <laughs> so you know. Yeah. And we were camped this spot. We pulled up in the early afternoon because I was a bit tired. And it was a beautiful spot at Billabong. And um, we had the kids out playing and we just set up camp. We were about to light a fire and cook some damper. And over here, some dogs. Sorry, there were some brumbies on the other side of the Billabong route. And they were really nervous. They looked really nervous. And... No, I couldn't see or hear anything was abnormal at that point, but they looked really nervous and they ended up running away and, and then I could hear some barking. I don't know the same horse, but hear some barking and, and barking's getting closer and closer and I was like, well, that's weird, those dogs are weird. And um, we we looked over and we could see the horses being chased by some dogs and all I guess that the, the horses were out on the dogs, but they had a foal with them, ended up on the other side of the billabong from where we camped and the, the horses had stopped and the dogs had surrounded them. 
and we like threw the kids in the caravan and like sort of chuck chuck the generator on so we put a movie on for the kids because it's early afternoon and uh, we just sort of spent the afternoon in in the van and then jack looked out the window of our kitchen area and could see something weird on the on the on the billabong you could see the dogs on the horse on a horse and they'd obviously killed the horse next to us like maybe 30 30 40 meters away from us wow and it was like uh, maybe eight dogs or something so i'm pretty pleased we went inside you know it was, it was a bit crazy it's probably the craziest experience we've had on the whole journey yeah i'm, I'm sitting here with a screwed up look on my face just <laughs> with the poor yeah. horse to top it off the next morning the dogs hadn't gone they were still hanging around we had a flat tire i was like oh no we had all these visions of leaving really quickly but um i had to change the tire yeah and were you you guys alone at that camp or were there other people? yeah no no it was just us yeah. we didn't see anyone for a couple of days then like we passed a few passed a few road trains but that was it we didn't see anyone for yeah three days all right so prepping for our road trips so, um the i mean other than the normal shopping for your groceries we always try to do a bigger shop than we need so we've got some spares in the cupboard we um we travel water being the most important and we'll fuel and water for the tanami we carried an extra 60 liters of diesel but we knew that we could get into two communities so the longest stretch without fuel i think from the tanami is, is 500 uh, 590 k's or something so we knew we had enough fuel to go from a service station to the next service station or fuel availability but the fuel on the Tanami is about $2.60 a litre. So we didn't want to buy it if we couldn't, if we didn't have to. And so did you guys uh, have long-range uh, tanks fitted or uh, just a couple of extra jerry cans? No, just um, three extra jerry cans. Oh, we have a long-range tank, do we? It's a standard tank. It's a 138-litre tank in our car, which is standard. But we carried an extra 60 litres for this trip. So that took us through from Yendamu, which is the end of the bitumen on the, um, on the Alice Springs side all the way to the Alice, uh, sorry, the Halls Creek side where we can get some more fuel at Halls Creek. And then uh, water is the other, because obviously no water available. Um, we carry 180 litres in the caravan and we have a water bladder, Fleximac water bladder in the car, which carries an extra 110 litres. And, and was that enough? Yeah, heaps, no worries. And how many yep. days was that for? We did six days. And, and yeah. just out of interest, how did you work out how much water to carry? Um, we simply carry yeah, as much as we carry as much as we can, really. So when we fill up with water, we fill up some water bottles and stuff for the car. And yeah, we carry more water than we've done previously when we've done as long a trip. But I guess the the water in the car we sort of divide up to car and trailer water. The trailer water is what we'll use normally. We very frugal with the water we give the kids like a basic sponge bath at night and jack and i'll have like a five second shower if it's required and we have 110 liters in the car that will be our rescue emergency water so the water in the caravan is most at risk from from rocks and things like that maybe piercing the tank and so you can you can essentially lose all of your water fairly quickly if you i guess if you're unlucky so we have the rescue order in a car, and if we need it, that, that was devoted to that as being an emergency fund, I guess, of water. You know, water's a, a pretty heavy commodity. How did that go with uh, your weight? How, were you finding that you are close to maxed out with your weight with that extra water? No, we've been pretty lucky. Like, we've, we did the GVM upgrade. We, like, when, before we left, I was really paranoid about weights, really paranoid. So we had the GVM upgrade done on the cruiser, and 
the cruiser itself, this is the advantage of having that for us, is that we're carrying the water in the car as well, because the car is well under, we don't carry anything in the car. We've got no tools or anything in the car. So we're well under weight there. So it's better for us to carry that water in the car. Yeah, but no no issues with weight. We're that. pretty close in the caravan. Caravan's close, especially when we're fully shopping and, and stuff, but the car's under. Well, we, yeah, so we did, you know, six weeks of groceries. We might have did four or five weeks. We did a shop that was because we had to run through the gib as well. So we tried to shop in Alice for as much as we could, for as long as we could. No, at Halls Creek, there's a very expensive small IGA. So we tried to shop from to get us from Alice Springs to Kununurra, which is the next sort of Woolies. Yeah, so we tried to shop for that. Yeah. So obviously fresh fruit, a bit of. Yeah. So how do you go with your storage for fresh fruit? Do you have any um any ways that you keep things fresher for longer or ration it out no. so that you're not all fighting over the last banana, you know, one weekend? We buy a lot of packets of frozen fruit for the, like the frozen raspberries and stuff for the kids. And um, we keep, we keep extra food in the car fridge, which they don't look at, so they don't know it's there. So we, so we, we did a shop in Alice, which had to get us through the East McDonald Ranges, across the Tanami, and then four weeks across the Gib. That's what we sort of allowed That's the for. Plan, yeah. Yeah. We did a little top-up in Fitzroy Crossing at the shop there, um, but that was probably our. So we the fruit, we just had to, by the last couple of weeks, we were just on frozen fruit. We did manage to get some fresh fruit on the gib at that Imichi, which yeah. was, you know, a dollar a piece or something, so not as bad as we expected, but otherwise we were, de- yeah, down to the uh, frozen So stuff. we buy the frozen raspberries, frozen strawberries, frozen mangoes because um, they go well. Mm. Kids love them. We have a freezer in the, in the car as well, so they sit in that. Yeah. And oranges always last a few weeks. Yeah. So based on doing that, with the buying that far in advance, when you actually did that stretch of the road, did you find that was actually necessary and you're glad you did that or that you, when you went through you found, wow, actually it wasn't that bad, there was more availability and it wasn't as expensive as you, as you thought? If you went back in time, would you have done the same shop? We ended up yeah. buying a packet of biscuits in dryers, uh, which is up on the Columbia Road for $10.50. Wow. Okay. So, yep, shop yeah. up in Alice. <laughs> Definitely worth doing or that. Or if, if – you're going to do what we did, perhaps go from Halls Creek, I don't know, like maybe going to Kananara and before you do the gear or Broome before you do the gear. But I mean, it wasn't an option for us. So, yeah, like it's expensive up there. The Gib River Road is the most expensive road we've ever travelled. There is food available. Like Mount Barnett Station had meat and I think Drysdale had lot. like, you know, they had yeah, all the staples. staples. And there's like Drysdale has a restaurant and Ellen Brayden. Yeah. You know, stuff. so there there is food available. It's just the prices are, yeah, yeah, astronomical. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. For us, it was definitely necessary for us to stock up with as much as we could, could carry within our our you know our comfort zone and and what we could try and do and what we could fit in really. Yeah. So, was there anything else that you um, prepared beforehand for tackling the gib? Yeah, like I'm I'm not a mechanic, but um we carry we carry two spare tires. Two spare tires. We got a plug kit for fixing tires, and a spare fuel filter, spare um, air filter, and that's about it. Just a handful of tools, um, and then just uh, with the way we drive and tire pressures. So that's that's how we prepare. Really, is we try and just take things a bit more comfortably. And we're unlucky enough that we did the gear 
during school holidays for both the Northern Territory and the Western Australia. And it was crazy. It was crazy busy and people were crazy driving. So it was, um, yeah. <laughs> so, so being busy, did you need or did you feel the need to, say, get a satellite phone or was, you know, Telstra coverage with the UHF plus, you know, the traffic on the Gibb River Road enough? We have a sat phone. Um, there's no Telstra. There's no, there's Telstra. no Telstra across and the Tanami and there's no... Oh, no, no, we had... A, one there spot. was one spot. We, in the middle of the Tanami, we parked on this hill, which is an amazing hill. Go to YouTube, watch our YouTube video and he'll subscribe if you like. But... um. <laughs> We um, it was because the, there's a mine in the middle of Tanami that have Telstra coverage, but otherwise, there's only two places I think in Thai Gibb where you'll have Optus. Yeah, there's a little bit of Optus but, on um, the Gibb, but there's no Telstra at all on the Gibb. Imagey, I don't know. The Optus was sketchy. No, there was Optus. So we yeah. carry a couple of SIM cards. We have an Optus SIM card. And we have a Telstra SIM card. So, and they're pay-as-you-go. I don't know what you call prepaid SIM cards. So we can swap them out, swap them in. That's a good tip, actually, is to have a couple of SIM cards, prepaid SIM cards across the country, because especially south, coming through the middle of the country, it's, it seems to be most, even William Creek through the Unidata was Optus. So a lot of Optus, no Telstra. Mm, that's interesting because uh, people always seem to say that Telstra's king for the coverage. Yeah. Mm. The outside, it definitely is. Go the middle? No. Yeah. Okay. And so you'd definitely say, based on that then, that if you're going to be doing that, you'd need to have a sat phone just in case. Yeah, look, I mean, I've the yeah, a PLB, sat phone, some sort of device. But, you know, the traffic on the Gib is so busy that you would be very unlucky to have anything go wrong and not have someone come past fairly quickly. Even the officers not believe the Gib's fairly regularly driven in by trucks and stuff. So okay. the Tanami, a different story. I think Tanami can be quite lonely and um, you definitely need something there to, um, even the Udida are busy, but Tanami is a bit quiet. So, yeah, look, something there to, to call for help would be good. I reckon. And the thing is, if you need to call for help, you don't really want to wait until someone drives past. So, you know, sometimes you don't have that time to wait. Yeah, that luxury. And even if you have a mechanical phone, like we had some friends who, our first lap between um, Fitzroy Crossing and Broome broke down and uh, they spent, they had, they made a phone call and still spent 14 or 18 hours on the side of the road waiting for help. Wow. After a phone call. So if you had to throw in, and they had young kids as well like us or, if you had to throw in wait time for someone to drive past, then you know that becomes a really long day. So, yeah. I don't know. I I would advocate for a sat phone or some sort of communication device for most people doing these these things. You know. Yeah, and yeah, and you mentioned you know the potential of up to a fourteen hour wait, and I guess probably even more sometimes. Um, both of you guys having background as a paramedic. What additional first aid precautions would you recommend to someone who's tackling the gear or the Tanaman? Now, I'm an ex paramedic, so I'm going to leave this <laughs> one with Jack. Um, well, like, we obviously have a ginormous first aid kit, but I think, I think that it's really important to just have your main sort of like we have snake bite bandages. I think they're really important for everyone to have. Most likely, you'll never ever use one, but you know, and it, we have, you know, everything you can imagine, but some like, you know, especially if you have kids, just the basic kids' medicines, um, like antihistamines and stuff. Or, or we've used that a few times with, um, you know, bites and reactions to things. Sometimes you just, it's just not possible to get to a doctor straight away. So and um, we take, uh, you know, like butterfly clips if they've got cuts that maybe need sutures but you can't get them there that day. 
we've been lucky with all of our hospital visits. We've been close to hospital. We've been yeah. pretty fortuitous in that regard, I guess. But, I mean, the, the basic things, I think, in every first aid kit, just say is common sense and some to stop bleeding. You know, that's beyond that, you know. I think it's really, I think everyone should do a first aid course before leaving for a trip like this because you just can't predict what you're going to need. And at the moment, we've mostly used just basic Band-Aids and bandages and really we haven't needed anything too exciting. But We were unlucky enough that um, when we were last uh, west of Sydney and Blue Mountains that we came across a motorcyclist who'd gone around a corner too fast and he'd broken his leg and his shoulder or something. Jack treated him for a while and lucky we didn't have to delve into the first aid kit. But it was one of those reminders because it was kind of just out of phone contact and it took a while for the ambulance to arrive and they're called an aircraft. So it took a while. So, I mean, it's one of those instances that just brings you back to, like, it can take a really long time to get help. So you need to be somewhat self-sufficient, absolutely. That's uh, you know, very, very good advice. And you mentioned about, you know, the distance and the Tanami being fairly lonely and the, the, the distance with the fuel stops as well. How diligent did you need to be with the the planning, the stops using wiki camps or something, or did you, with the additional fuel carriage capacity, you could sort of um, push through a bit? Uh, we kind of, yeah, our driving days are more governed by the kids than fuel or anything like that. Like we, we're really kind of loose with our driving days. I guess I did, I sat down and I did a few nights of reading about um, through different you know, googly type things about how far it was and what other people had done and trying to find other vehicles of of like ours to see what their fuel consumption was and and just trying to find some information because it's not always forthcoming. So we've been we've been in that regard just doing our own research. Wiki provides a little bit but doesn't tell you um, about the fuel prices and things like that. We use fuel maps, I think, for the fuel things, but again they're only as good as whoever updates them. So um yeah, I guess we just the distances from um, the Truth Information Centre and what we can Google. And on the on the distances, um, so we've been travelling up the east coast, and our kids are very used to like one and a half hour, two hour drives before we get to the next destination. And I think they're in for a rude shock as we head across from uh, Cairns to Darwin. How do your kids go with the longer driving days? Um, and do you have any? like ways you keep them entertained and stop them from killing each other and killing you? <laughs> Not really, sorry. <laughs> they kind of sound already different now. We, we don't do, we very rarely will do more than three hours in a day. Yeah. Like there obviously have been times where we've had to, but we don't, it's not fun for anyone with everyone screaming and fighting and everyone's hungry and, you Jack know. will pre-pack some snacks and stuff and, and we'll tee up the iPads, but we try and keep off the iPads and use that as a reward for, you know, reward for good behaviour further down the track. But, yeah, no, like I think kids are so individual that. Yeah, snacks always win though. <laughs> what gets us through as well. Our kids can eat breakfast and get in the car through and say, I'm hungry. Oh, yeah, we're yeah. exactly the same. <laughs> you can't be hungry. <laughs> And doing these trips, were there any other knickknacks, um, you know, any items that you guys needed to buy or, you know, wish you'd bought that, you know, would just make your life easier travelling to the more remote areas? But I think that um, when this goes back, I think when we first left, I was saying this 
um, recently. When we first left, we didn't really know because we had no idea about caravanning or what we're in for. We didn't buy anything. We decided we'd buy things that we needed as we went. So as we went across, probably where you're about to go, Savannah Way, we decided we needed a generator because we just things weren't awesome with what we were doing and we had to learn how to do some stuff. So we ended up buying a generator. So the generator has been really good for us. We had it sent to Broome and picked up in Broome. But other than that, like, I think that we're fairly frugal and don't need a whole lot of stuff. So, you know, some food, some beer and power, we're pretty good. Yeah. So on that, what's your solar setup like? Um, at the moment, we've got 240 watts on the roof. We've got 160 watt fold out panel and two 120 AGM batteries. So, which is fine, but it doesn't run our air conditioner. And, you know, it's, well, we don't have a microwave or anything, but it, we just, um, we bought the generator, but we trust when we first came across the top, it was in the build up. So just before the wet season. And we just found with the little one. So my, our youngest was one, just turned one at the time. And so he was still up a couple of times at night. And it was just 36, 37 degrees at midnight. So the generator allowed us to run the air conditioning when we're free camping. Which was, we, you know, we, we'd pull up at a free camp and we'd be the only ones there. So we could flick the generator on and cool the house, like cool the van down for a couple of hours or, and it, you know, didn't bother anybody. And so that really worked for us across coming across the top last time. Yeah, we um, hadn't thought we needed a generator till we picked Queensland in the heat. Now I can understand why people have them. Well, again, it's, we, we did exactly the same thing. We sort of left thinking, no, our solar's fine. We won't need anything like yeah, that. Yeah, sweet. Yeah. <laughs> and then we, we had across, so across the um, top end, it was, we had, oh, and into WA as well, we didn't have a day under 40 for nearly three months. Yeah. So we definitely needed the generator. <laughs> yeah. When we went into the Bungle Bungles, the first, I think we, at nine o'clock in the morning, it was 40 degrees. When we're driving the bungle bungles, oh, wow! The definitely the the generator has been a big thing. We know everyone hates them. We don't use them when there's other people around, or they might be the people that don't have them and they're jealous when it's hot, though. So. I say so. <laughs> but that's the thing, I guess. That's the when we travelled up here last, and no one was here. It was empty, so there was no queues. The caravan pass were empty, and we got to do a lot of a lot of stuff that we probably wouldn't have done otherwise. You know, I mean, we were talking the other day. We went to Kununurra, coming off a of gib. As you guys, I guess, are finding out, you sort of travel the same direction as other families. You keep bumping into each other as you go around. And um, we got to Kananara, the, the caravan park. I'd opened up a new section for us. It was just for the families that arrived. So wow. three or four families that were there, and they just opened up the whole section for us. There was no one else there. There was no just one else. In, we were the only people yeah. in Kananara, I think. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it was really good. So in that regards, it was, it was awesome to travel in the off-season, but it is hot. It is hot. And what would you see has been your, you know, your must-see camp spot or your favourite place of all time on your journeys? I think that for me, on the Dampier Peninsula, there's a place called Pender Bay Escape. And we were, again, the only ones there. It was ridiculously hot. And we park our caravan sort of on a, I don't want to say on the top of a cliff because we're very safe with our kids, but we're sort of looking out down onto the water and, and they had a um like an outdoor bath thing there. So you, we had all the kids in the bath and, well, I had a bath as well, sitting out overlooking the ocean and the beautiful red cliffs and the, the sand. And that's probably the most incredible place I think I've been. 
apparently in the whale season you can hear the humpback singing in the in the bay from that from the cliff tops. Oh, amazing. For me, the probably cliche, but I really liked to be here in Kakadu. It was like one of those hair raising moments for me. It was just it was just very I hate to say it, but it was spiritual. I really liked it. It was just this really big feeling that I had. I don't know how to describe it, but I really liked to be here. Which is uh, a very it's just north of Kales Crossing or right next to Kales Crossing. It's full of Aboriginal art and history and you watch the sun go down over floodplains which weren't flooded at the time because it was really dry. But um, it was still just a magic night, really amazing. You said that was in Kakadu? Kakadu, yeah. Yeah, which yeah. is interesting because you hear, like you hear so many varied opinions on Kakadu. I, I don't understand it. I don't. This is some of the things often discussed, especially in the Darwin area with other families, how people say Kakadu don't. I, I don't know, like it's, it's probably a bit contentious, but I don't know why. I really like Kakadu. You don't go there for the Litchfield experience. You can't compare Litchfield and Kakadu. I suspect a lot of people do. Um, Kakadu is an experience in itself, and, and I think it's um it's got some very fine waterfalls, but it's just it's very spiritual there. I like it. Mm. And as you said um, before, we started recording. Uh, you just go places now. You know, we also don't really like giving our opinion on caravan parks, or our experience could be just yeah. completely different to yours when you go there. And we loved Kakadu. We can't understand why people don't like it. And we almost didn't go because so many people had said, no, you can't do it with little kids. And we almost did go to Karajini as well. Like, I, did, we nearly missed Karajini because people said, oh, you know, like, don't, don't go. But Karajini was really special for us. I can break it down the most basic way I can is corrugations on roads, you know. People think some roads are awful. And we're going to be like, this isn't too bad, you know. This is not bad for us. So if people's ideas and perceptions are very different to each other's and or yeah. you go one week later and oh, yeah. or, it's completely yeah. different. Well, like when we went up to Mitchell Falls, we um, 20 k's from Drysdale Station North, it was abysmal. It was probably one of the equally worst roads we've ever been on. It was horrible. And um, we just got past and saw the grader driving down. And I talked to a grader on the CB and said, what are you going to do next? Said, I'm doing the, those 20 k's to Drysdale. You know, so everyone behind us got a graded road. You know, so things are changeable and, and there's a lot of perception involved. So I think that everyone needs to just make their own decisions. We spoke to the Galways Go Round recently and they said very similar. They said you could go to a place and the sun is shining and you have the best day ever, but someone else could go the next day and it's cold and rainy and they could hate it. So Exactly. Or your kids have been up all night and you're just not yeah. having a great day at all, no matter where you are. Yeah, or it's too bloody hot or too bloody cold or too bloody wet or, you know, whatever it is. I can't think of anywhere we've had like that. I can't think of any negative experiences we've had. So on that then, what advice would you give to families, you know, who are either considering travelling full-time or, you know, about to set off on a, a one-month or two-month adventure across the outback? Have fun. Relax. <laughs> Just some basic preparation and, yeah, and yeah I mean, this, is not imp- this is not a dream. It's not impossible. If we can do it. And we, uh, like, let's be honest, we're just a couple of people who don't know how to caravan and don't know how to, like, do outback. And we have. So if we can do it, anybody can do it. So just basic preparation, really. Know your vehicles and know yourselves and take it easy. As everybody says, drive to condition. So, you know. Oh, yeah. Look, that's, can I just say, Michael, on that, this is just one thing that really irks me is coming off the gear, we saw a lot of, a lot of punctures and a lot of, um, we saw a few broken things. We met some people who had a lot of breakages and stuff on the gibbon. And there's this, I think, 
this is entirely my opinion. There's a train of thought out there that says you shouldn't reduce your tire pressures. And oh, oh, do you really want to go there? <laughs> go there. Go there. Honestly, believe that this is a foolish, foolish thing to not do. Um, oh I think dear. That you, I'll be as contentious as I can be here, and and you need to reduce your tire pressures. Don't run across dirt roads and corrugations with 45 psi or 40 psi when 26 or 30 is far more appropriate. Now I know people will say to me that that's just silly or I mean, some people believe it might void their insurance, sorry. Our caravan manufacturer, speak to your caravan man- manufacturer or your campus manufacturer, but ours says reduce your tyre pressures. I'm not an engineer, I'm not a tyre expert, so I'll have to like go to their expertise in here. But I also know about our comfort and our comfort over these kilometres has been that the lower the tyres over the rough of the road and the slower we go, the more comfortable we are. And the less, we've had one puncture over all the dirt roads we've done. And I reckon that's pretty good. And that's because we drive fairly sedately with lower tyre pressure. So, you know, subscribe to whatever theory you want. And if the theory that, that says you should drive 45 PSI at 80 kilometres an hour of the gear is yours, then, you know, knock yourself out. But, um, well, it's not the one we subscribe to. Jack's looking at me now. <laughs> you idiot. What have you done? <laughs> I think that tyre pressures are really important and you should be really considerate about how you do that. And, it, it, you know, even... One of the big things for us, we've got these massive smashes in our windscreen from people driving too fast past. This is a very considerate thing to do is when you are approaching traffic is to slow down. On dirt roads, rock sorry. roads, yeah, yeah. yeah not, you don't this have to do that on the highway. <laughs> so slow and drop your dust because dust is A, you cannot see on a dusty day. You, your visibility is like three or four metres. I've, I've had to stop at times because I can't see. And the other thing is no good for your car to suck that stuff through your air filter. So slow down and let drop your dust. And the other thing is that rocks get thrown up from, we've got eight wheels on our on our rig. So it throws up a lot of rocks and you're throwing rocks potentially at other people. So slow down and drop your dust and drop your rocks. And I remember it's a law in WA that you have to pull over and stop for oncoming road train on dirt road. So the Tanami, and I believe the Gibbs is exactly the same. You're supposed to stop for oncoming road trains. Yeah, and that's my that's my soapbox for the day. No, we're we're going to have someone on talking about tire pressure because it seems to come up quite a bit. So, and I think your philosophy of you know driving to conditions, whether you're talking speed, tire pressure, um, your handling of the vehicle, everything, it's it's sound advice, and I don't think anyone could argue with it. You know, it's really tiring driving really rutted, corrugated roads is really tiring. The faster you go, the more quickly shit goes wrong. Our background in emergency mm. service tells us what happens, you know, and if, if shit goes wrong and you're 400 k's from the nearest town and you need RFDS to come and get you, it's really ugly. So I, I would have thought it's common sense to slow down and take it easy and, and be considerate of the drivers, really. So you asked before about other families wanting to travel or thinking about travelling even for a month or something like if you've got your adventure planned and, and, it, and, it, and it means going across like as a half flat doing the Unidad of the Tanami across the Gibb and, and back home, and even just Cape York, which we get to do, just do it. Just go and do it. Just make sure you're prepared. And, and if we can give you any advice, just ask or just find some advice from somebody else. There's plenty of people out there that have done it and are going to do it. And um, so there's current advice available. Just have some fun. Go and find yourselves and find your kids and, and live life to, to what you can. Life's too short. Exactly. 
Well, um, can you tell us where people that are listening today can find out more about you? We are on Facebook, Instagram and YouTube. We also have a website, which is just www.chaosinatincan.com.au. We try and put different stuff on all of our mediums and then the website sort of collates everything. Um, And where are you guys off to next? We're going to meet another travelling family to do the Cape together, which is super exciting because we love travelling with other families, even if it's just for short times. So we're hoping there'll be lots of families doing the gib with us in September. Uh, Sorry, doing the Cape with us in September. So give us a shout if you're doing Cape in September because we um, definitely, the more the merrier. We'd love to catch up with people and and hang out because I think that's like going to be an amazing trip, a really amazing trip. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for your time tonight, guys. It's been great and it's given us a lot of things to think about before we head across the Savannah Way in the next few weeks. I'm sure. Have fun. Have fun. Enjoy it. Thank you for listening to a big peachy adventure of families travelling full-time. What drives us is hearing of those we've inspired to simplify their life and take the first step towards their travelling goals. So please... If you get any value from what we're doing, the biggest reward we could ask is that you share this podcast with your travelling buddies. Don't forget to click subscribe and also please leave us a review. Five stars hopefully, but if not, that's okay. Please leave a comment and let us know what we can do better. If you'd like to connect with us personally or have any questions, you can find us on Facebook at A Big Peachy Adventure. See you on the road and happy travels.